Hey there, this is Ray Dadaram from STEP, and welcome to this episode of Meta Conversations, where I interview successful startup founders in or from emerging markets. If you enjoy listening and find it useful, you can follow the podcast on Spotify and Rami and Apple Podcasts, or watch the video version on stepplus.stepconference.com. I'm joined today by Ahmad Hamdan, the founder and CEO of Uniphonic, one of the largest and fastest growing uh, startups in Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. Uh, Ahmad, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Ray. Uh, it's my I pleasure start to be with, by... uh, with you today, and uh, you know, I hope that I will uh, be a you know light and uh, beneficial guest for you and for the audience. I'm sure you will be, and I think you have <laughs> from our earlier conversation, a quick conversation, Brad. I think there's a lot uh, for our audience, especially startup founders, to learn. And specifically, the the part that I really want to start with. Uh, is how long you've bootstrapped and your bootstrapping uh, journey with uh, Uniphonic. Ten years of bootstrapping. I think uh, probably you 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 break the record maybe for many <laughs> startups in terms of bootstrapping before you got your your uh, first funding round. Uh, so tell us about that. When when did you start Uniphonic? Uh, what was the bootstrapping journey like? How did you get your first uh, kind of like revenue or how did you fund the company when you first started? This is a big question for a lot of uh, early founders that are starting their businesses and they're trying to figure out how to get started. Sure. Yeah. So uh, maybe it was not uh, optional back then, but uh, for sure it was an, uh, a learning journey that shaped what we are today because as, as all of us know, when you put strap, you do things differently, you optimize for, uh, uh, you know, uh, efficiency and that built in the DNA of the organization and us as the founder, different, uh, you know, uh, uh, attributes that really needed, especially, you know, in the last two or three years uh, uh, when, when, when COVID hit and, you know, in the first like few months uh, when COVID happened, we really wanted to optimize for efficiency. Uh, so I started back when I was in the college, 2006, and the way we started the business is uh, I had a personal need for communication to a bigger group uh, as I was head of one of the clubs and I wanted to broadcast a message to 300 students. And, and I couldn't do it back then because of the limitation of the tech. Uh, and I thought then there should be as a software engineer a way to do it using, you know, uh, the power of the code and software. So we did it with my founder and brother, my my youngest brother at high school uh, back then, Hassan. Uh, and because the background that we come from, the resources that we have access to, and us as you know, very young at that age, uh, uh, we have to to bootstrap. So we we grow slowly. Even the way we selected the business model and the product offering and the way we build the team was always influenced by the fact that we are bootstrapping. So for a long time, we were not in salary. For a long time, we, we didn't distribute dividends, although the company was profitable. Uh, the way we deal with customers and partners and, you know, the cash flow management, all, you know, all those decisions. And when we start building the team, get impacted by that fact. But maybe it comes at the cost of the growth back then. But 
the market was not ready for, uh, you know, uh, exponential growth. It was so early in our industry, in our mm-hmm. markets. Yeah. Uh, so it, it was the best decision that we bootstrapped for 10 years because it saved us a lot of, of money that probably will not be spent the right way if the market, you know, is, is not ready for that growth. And, and we learned a lot through that journey. You, you come from an engineering background from university? What did you study? Yeah, I studied software engineering, but I never wrote uh, a code, you know. And I, I never wrote code, okay. <laughs> and when you first started uh, right off university, uh, that's what I did as well, and I never got a job anywhere. And how did you uh, go about, uh, you know, learning how to run a business, or did you just kind of throw yourself in the... Uh, see and, and and figure out how to exactly swim. yeah the, the the street you know <laughs> <laughs> that's how I yeah. got to learn so it's like the biggest school in the world you know <laughs> definitely and, and I think they had a different name right when you start what was the the name of yeah that, the, the, the name of that that back then the, the that web based application that we built was Resality so in Arabic it's like my message uh, so we wanted to be because it was targeted for B two C by the way. Uh, we wanted to be personal. Everyone feel that if if he's like broadcasting his own message to his own people, mm-hmm. so we call it reality. It was you know light green, the the main logo, and it shows the old version of the mobiles back then. You know the Ericsson and, and the band. Yeah, yeah, back <laughs> in the the old days. And you you bootstrapped until what was your your I think you made uh, ten million dollars plus uh, before you you got your first funding. Yes, exactly. And I know it's a big number for for anyone to bootstrap until that uh, you know milestone, even in, in very mature market or even emerging market. But yeah. we 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 learned a lot through the process. We even pivoted many times. So there was a time where we were doing, you know, anything tech. So we can, you know, grow and generate cash. Uh, but then 2013, 14, I would say it was one of the most critical inflection point in the history of the company where we get exposed to the international markets uh, and, and start to see how cloud and uh, uh, the smartphone and the AI and data disrupting many industries. We also built better governance. We established the first board before we raise even the fund. And, and through that process, we, we, you know, we bought a strategy where we want to be in the next three, four, four years. And part of that was the fundraise. It was a, a bland milestone that we want to reach to, uh, where we partner with uh, uh, organization that can take us to that milestone. So we started with this, you know, vision uh, 2014, and we raised uh, the the first round 2018 October. So we worked our way until we were become ready to raise round and deploy capital to further, ex, uh, you know, expand the growth. How did you figure out that pivot point or that that kind of like switch to to maturity and scale? Uh, which is you looked at other players like like Twilio and others. How did you go about that? How did you were you watching them for a while, or uh, did you uh, seek advice from someone uh, to make that pivot? Yeah. So first, it's it say pivot, but like evol- evolution. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, uh, first, we 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 look inside, you know, and then we start to you know learn from outside. We look inside. 
We look into all the different business metrics. You know, uh, how is the growth in the revenue, the growth in the different, you know, financial metrics. And, and we as individual and leadership matured, you know, after being 10, 10 years in the business. So we know what we like inside and what, what we don't like. And we start to question our decisions and strategy. Can we do it better? Can we grow faster? Can we, be, you know, maybe achieve better customer retention or expansion rates? Uh, is the, you know, our position in the market is the best that we can achieve. So we have those questions internally and then, and we come to a realization, no, we can change things. We can become even more successful than we are. And, and uh, what's the way to do that? We start to, you know, look outside, benchmark the, the global players in more mature markets, talk with different senior leaders who being part of, you know, bigger success stories at later stage. And, and then this is how we mature the thinking, the strategy, and, we, and then we start executing. And after, after that, uh, in terms of your product, I want to switch a little bit, talk more about product, about, about the tech. Uh, you know, you started uh, from a personal need uh, in university. You want to send out SMS uh, to promote a club or to promote something, but then that's how you started and that's the best way to start. But then the product evolved so much over time from when you were bootstrapped until later on when you really became at scale. What's your methodology uh, when it comes to product engineering and, and, and design? What is your uh, approach? Do you kind of like see what the uh, market needs, conducting surveys, or do you look more and work within the team inside or more kind of what the, your vision that you set for the company? Uh, and then how do you translate that into um, a go-to-market and, 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 and a feature set and various things to add to the product? Yeah, so uh, at Unifonic, we say like everything we do should start with the customer need and, and, uh, and end with the customer, you know, feedback. Uh, and and most of the you know uh, evolution that happened you know across the company and specifically in the product was always around that. Actually, the first hire that I made in the company back in two thousand eight was customer support. We invested a lot in you know all the front you know line jobs. So we really uh, had you know always. Uh, I would say an obsession about how we can really understand the needs of the market, the customer's feedback, and and come back with something that they will really love and take it to the next customer. So even, uh, and and maybe it's something that happened, not necessarily the right thing, we never invested in actual traditional marketing things until recently, uh, because the, the actual true marketing that was happening is the customer uh, uh, feedback, whether through surveys or the discussion. In the first few years, it always was me and the leadership team at the meeting rooms with the customers, trying to figure out how we can help them succeed with engaging their customers. And, and is the, your customer the CTOs and tech of the of, of the client, or more the marketing side? Both. But uh, when we started in the old days, it was more the marketing. But then when the product matured, it become uh, uh, the CTOs. So right now we have 60% of the business more in the CTOs and the operation uh, teams within the big enterprises and then 40% within the marketing and the customer, you know, excellence, customer success. 
how did you understand that kind of because I believe that shifted with the market as well because with APIs kind of customers assured the, the, themselves that you try it out and then it didn't work and then you're like okay now I need to focus more on the marketing and then slowly transition because if you look at the international players they mostly work with, with on the tech side on integrating their APIs and, and, and so on. Uh, this is a big localization uh, kind of element, I guess. Exactly, and this is why just like I always get that question from whether any investors or or the ecosystem, how you compete with the international. So it's, like, it's, it's not the same, it's different, you know. The way our markets evaluate products, make decision and, you know, uh, uh, the, the, which product fits their need is totally different than the international because it's driven by the capabilities and skills available in the market and demand of the end user. The beauty of our business is hugely influenced by the end user because we are in the process, you know, in the business of making it extremely easy to engage with end customers. So if end customers use WhatsApp more, it doesn't necessarily apply to US, for example, and then our products need to cater for that need, how we can help our customers engage over WhatsApp, it's the preferred channel. And to your question, early in like 2006, until 2014, 15, the, the ABIs and developer community was not you know, anything you, you, that you could build a big business case around in the region. And the, the most of the use cases that were adopted is around marketing you know, and support. This is why we listen to that feedback and we double down. We build all the components and products that can help marketers, customer support, customer success managers engage better with their customers to achieve their goals. But then as we, you know, uncovered the need of the technical and operation team, we, we invested more in the, uh, you know, the ABIs, the tech side, the infrastructure side. Uh, and also the segments were different the early days, it was very difficult for us to penetrate enterprise. We were not recognized brand. We didn't have the right mm -hmm. investment when it comes to infrastructure mm -hmm. and security. Uh, so it was much easier for us to penetrate SMEs and hence the marketing and the customer support, customer success use cases. But in the last four or five years, based on even the strategy update that we did, both the, the, the Series A fund, we, we doubled down the enterprise. And this is where we focus more in the, you know, CTOs and the yeah. CEOs of the world. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and when it comes to actually choosing your target audience and who you are, this is a big question for a lot of, especially SaaS startups, uh, defining their, their target segment. Is it, you know, small to medium enterprise, is it large enterprises, uh, is it individuals? Who do I go after? Because many times, like in your case, your product could be used by all sizes of companies. Did you figure that out just by trial and error, or was it more of a of a defined strategy, or did it shift over over time? So in the early days, it was trial and error, but you know, since two thousand fifteen, it's always bland based on the feedback that and the, you know the research that we do. I would so you get you got to start somewhere. And any, you know, B2B company, you get to start somewhere, whether it's SMEs or, or mid-market or enterprise. You cannot do it all at the same time, especially in the early days. So th that was something that we had clarity about. We cannot be everywhere. We need to focus on a specific segment. But when we look into what are the different options, uh, we, we look into two key important things that we always had in mind. Number one is the, the opportunity size and the growth 
and 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 this specific segment. And then number two is the the you know competitive landscape, you know. And we always try to optimize for bigger opportunity size and and less uh, you know uh, uh, competition. But then you need to start somewhere. You know, we used to be SMEs and now we are enterprise. Yeah, we, we say enterprise first. We still do SMEs and mid-market. Uh, it's very difficult to go up uh, stream. Uh, and, and, and you know, if, if that been done perfectly, it, it's great because then you have the scale to do both and grow both. Uh, we, we saw also the opposite, and which is much easier. You start with the enterprise and then, you, you know, you, you go down to cover other segments like mid-market and SMEs. What's your growth strategy about it? Is it more of an outbound uh, kind of like approach or, or inbound or combination of both? Um, and how did you assemble that to get customers? Yeah, so with the enterprise focus that we had in the last four or five years become more outbound, uh, and, and this is also a different nature based in the market. And it started to change recently with COVID uh, because people now are, you know, are more online so they can engage with the, you know, different ways of, you know, reaching to, the, to, to, to them online and it can influence their buying decision. Uh, but what we have seen with the enterprises, like 70% of the efforts are outbound. Uh, and 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 this is inbound in the mid market and the SMEs. It's the opposite. Uh, most of the founders of the mid market and SMEs, especially in the knowledge based, they they actually uh, uh, you know can be influenced with all the activities that you, you you can do as a startup online. Do you have any tactics or things that you've used when it comes to outbound? A lot of startups rely on on outbound. Uh, sales and marketing what has worked for you any tools you that, that you've used in the past or today i mean your product is like outbound kind of one way or the other uh, sms and, and email and all of that uh what is like things that have worked for you whether early on to get your first 50 customers or uh today to really get you know land your uh, multi-million dollar enterprise customer so when, when it comes to tools, of course, you have to try Uniphonic. So it can help you with the, <laughs> the, uh, the outbound. But um, so the first early stages, it's the, you know, the story that you tell and how genuinely you care about the customers and you as a leader, as a founder, uh, being out there, you know, telling the story to the customer and, and fulfill the promises that you promised them in those, you know, meetings. Uh, and I, I think there is no substitute for that because it will, uh, number one, give, build the trust and the confidence on the, the customer side because they are making uh, an important decision that will Im impact their organization and their, themselves. Uh, but also it will uh, improve the learning cycle for you as a founder, show you perfect the, the, the product market fit and the after uh, sales you know, uh, organization. At bigger scale, you know, one of the few things that really worked for us at scale is number one, focused events for our customers. Uh, so, so most of them physical, I'm talking about you know, the world before COVID and now recently in the last few months. 
uh, when when people become more back in in, in physical events. So we are back as well. At yeah. Step, so. uh, that, that's great. Looking forward to that. Yeah. <laughs> so th- this has really worked well when it's focused. So when there is a theme for the event and there is a special content prepared for the target audience, and, and this creates a very good opportunity for your organization and the target customer organization to have a discussion about the product and the offer, whether directly or indirectly. Uh, and then number two uh, is, uh, uh, you know, the, how you can streamline the whole engine of, you know, uh, SDR working to get to, to the right people and book the meetings and then sales executive uh, with the help of sales engineers and solution engineers to, to influence the decision. And then the account managers and customer success uh, to, to, to land the deal and grow the business, plus all the back office support and delivery. So building that organization with the right, ship, the right leadership, the processes, the tooling behind that uh, is the main engine that you can scale the outbound uh, yeah. you know, activities. I'm going to get to that in, in, in more detail in terms of like assembling a team because that's extremely important about scaling. But to uh, on the point of uh, tackling uh, at scale uh, enterprise customers, your sh- your shift or your approach that's worked for you is shifting more to like thought leadership, to content, to educating, and to really positioning Unifonic as a as a leader in in the, in the space. Yeah. So what I, I I always you know tell our you know marketers and sellers is when we go to that customer meeting. Uh, the customer has to know about Unifonic before we talk about it. And this is the importance of the thought uh, leadership. Makes a big difference exactly. if they know or don't know. Exactly. Yeah. It makes everything after that much easier. So how they should know about us, there are many activities that we can do, but simply just reverse engineer that. Think about you know who will take the decision of buying the product and then ask yourself, you know, as a marketer or as a founder, how I can reach to them before they think about the product. You know, what are the you know content that they consume, what the events they attend, uh, you know, how they network. All those questions will lead you to the right, you know, way of engaging uh, with with those leaders, whether it's through online or offline, or or any other you know means. Mm-hmm. Uh, going into what we were just talking about, assembling a team. This is, I think, the most challenging uh, and underrated task for a founder to go from. I mean, you were already at a quite a sizable company of, of you know ten million dollar plus, but really scaling from tens of employees to hundreds of employees, and then uh, that's when you need to um, bring on experienced executives, you have to hire a lot of VPs, uh, a lot of uh, different people within the team. And then there's a lot of things that you're not going to continue to have the same kind of like daily access to or knowledge about. So you kind of have to build that, that team. And there's different, you know, different leaders, different people have, have uh, various approaches and, and ways that they go about that. But I want to hear more about kind of like your story and uh, how you assemble that. So starting off uh, with hiring executives and hiring uh, 
people. So I know, for example, uh, one of my friends, Jonathan Levin, was you know heading Facebook, and there's now uh, uh, working with you guys. So bringing people like Jonathan and others who are uh, well uh, experienced within this, and their executives. Uh, what's your process for that? Finding such talent, bring them on, make them believe in the vision. Uh, from kind of like finding them to the interview to the uh, when they join in uh, in terms of culture fit and so on because that's very different from when you hire a um, junior engineer versus hiring someone who has 15 20 years of experience and have been around the block yeah i agree by, by the way I'm, I'm very big at you know building the right team and culture i spend most of my time as founder and ceo you know in this problem and i i truly believe that with the right culture and the right leadership team, there is no limit to what an organization can achieve. You know, I, we, we, we live that, we, we practice that every day, and, and it's, it's part of our DNA at Uniphonic. Uh, and again, it starts with the story that you are telling, because those people, especially the leadership, uh, 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 you know, they will always have somehow better options and they will take sacrifices to join a startup at early stage so they need to be part of a uh, of, of uh, a bigger purpose a reason that will motivate them every day to push hard as much as you uh, do as a founder so you know finding this story and purpose that will connect all those people together to serve one mission is is the key part, even from the early, you know, days. Uh, but also one thing that I learned, you know, through the mentorship, which is an important thing when it comes to, you know, all, you know, leadership and and uh, uh, recruitment and culture aspect is always speak with people who've been there, who've done that, because it's, it's not what you think. It's not something that you will learn from, you know, your school or college or, or even if you are in any big corporate, it's totally different way when you are in startup. Doesn't apply, you know, uh, all the things that you will learn in any organization when you go and build it yourself. So I learned a lot from many people who, consult, you know, I, I used to consult and they were very great mentors for me. One of the things that we implemented early is hire for the next 18 months when you go and hire executive. So do not hire people for the next two, three, four years because then the scope will be for them much less than what they want to do and then they will be frustrated. And also do not hire people for the next three months because as a startup you grow quickly and fast. And if, if they cannot achieve what you want them to achieve in three or six months, in nine months, then they become a burden. Uh, so, so this is one of the things that we do. We always look and, and, you know, what we want to achieve in the next 18 months. And then we, we ask ourselves, what's the right leader who can achieve that? Uh, one of the other things that we always, you know, use, which is part of also of the, the culture, is to be very, you know, open and transparent with executive about, you know, since the early days about the expectation. And, and, and working for a startup is not, uh, you know, something that everyone will enjoy. They need to know what they are signing up for it's it's uh, i would say always you know anytime i meet an executive who never worked for a startup told him you know it's it gonna be a, a, a chaos you know it's it's organized chaos as we scale but it's not 
it's not something that is you know streamlined and and uh, you know everything has a process no like 70 percent of the time you have to create a process if needed or you just put a guideline you yeah, you're here to sell the process <laughs> yes <Yeah. laughs> so so i build the right expectation i would say one of the very important thing to succeed with attracting and also retaining the, the the leaders at the organization i can talk about this you know all day and night so I will leave it to you if you want me to speak in specific topics. And yeah, I'm interested leader. about the, the, the process of uh, recruiting. So the, the reason why is because it's, it's, it's very, you know, when we bring in someone who's very experienced, very senior, paying them a lot of money, um, there is one uh, aspect of, uh, like you said, so that the cultural aspect where they come from versus the startup uh, is extremely important pre joining like in the interview process to figure out if they fit culturally or not and then there's the part after they join for the first month two months whatever how do you see the integration and generally a lot of people especially within startups have been around for a while and grown with the company and then they have you have senior executives coming in uh there needs to be an integration right so so you, you probably watch that very carefully as a leader so I'm keen to know, you know, what's your kind of approach for first recruiting uh, and find like you talked about, find the right person, but then knowing during that interview process, what do you use as to kind of like evaluate? And then what are certain things you look out for? Where is your red lines? When do you know that, you know, this is someone who's who needs to leave now or someone who needs to stay? Yeah, so in the interview process, few things that we implemented uh, and it was, you know, a, a big leap for us to improve, uh, you know, our ability to, uh, to, to to recruit. But the way, you know, I'm, I'm very proud with the effort that we achieved in the recruitment. Recently, we won the award of LinkedIn, the best, uh, you know, uh, you know. Uh, uh, That's awesome. Yeah, for the, the 500 and less, com- you know, Blue's company. So. We're able really to attract good talents recently from all around the world, by the way, not only in the region. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that we do, number one, we script all, you know, the different things that we want to do in the recruitment so it becomes not a personal decision. Uh, we optimize for the recruitment outcome to be the same even if we change the people. Uh, and this will make the, the process, you know, uh, always optimized for the business goals, not the individual people, you know, uh, preferences. So, uh, for example, me, myself, I'm not the only one who, who, who you know, have the, the decision to say yes, because at the end of the day, I'm human. I could be biased. Uh, yeah. so, so, so I always involve, depends on the level of the people that we're hiring, but at least, you know, if we're hiring our, uh, a manager, so at least two or three other managers has to say yes to so people at the yeah. same level or higher, even. And uh, is it your, so like uh, from Ben Horowitz, for example, remember now this example, he mentions that, you know, you, you uh, involve other people in the process, uh, to, to you listen, you advise, but at the end of the day, it's a lonely decision that you have to take and it should be your, like you have to have the final call uh, final call or just make that lonely kind of like decision because sometimes, um, you know, people might be with or against and have different opinions. Uh, do you believe in that or do you believe so, more so that it's... We, we give that power to the hiring manager, but uh, there is a veto for for uh, culture fit. 
So for example, if that specific post would report into me, I'm the hiring manager, so I take the final decision. But there is a veto for the culture fit. So if people in the decision said that this is not a culture fit, uh, we, we, we do not hire. Because for the culture fit, everyone has to say, hell yes. And this is the approach that we, yeah. we, we think works better. If you have doubts in the culture from the early days, it almost every time it's true. Uh, you, you know, and, and you can tell that so there is a probability that you'll do, uh, you know, false uh, 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 positive. So you let people pass and you discover they are not culture fit. But the probability to, to, to have, you know, a, a true, uh, uh, you know, uh, negative is very minimal. If you have, you know, an expectation that someone is not culture fit because of their behavior within the interview, they probably are. So this is one, one thing that we do in the interview and the recruitment. The final decision is the hiring manager decision, but there should be a committee and there is veto of if it's something related to the culture. Another thing that we also implemented and it was great, in the early stage, we hire generalists. So we hire people who are great leaders, good culture fit, but not necessarily you know, have all the technical yeah, sp special uh, skills in that specific area because, you know, everyone are expected to do anything needed at the early stage. But then as you scale, we hire more specialists because the complexity of the work become, you know, bigger. And then there are many things that specific that we want to achieve. So we started recently to shift toward hiring specialists. We still do generalists, especially myself, because there's always things new that we want to do as an organization and me as, as a CEO, and it's not necessarily clear today. So I still hire a few generous leaders every year, and then I assign them specific projects, depends on the need and, and, and you know, the, the emergence of any new you know, opportunity within the year. Makes sense. I want to talk about culture, actually, because you brought that up. How do you assess for culture at Unify or in general? Like, what is what is the definition of a culture? Is it like a written down uh, checklist that you look at the person if they're a culture fit, or is it more of a feeling to like we feel that people belong or similar to us as individuals? What is because uh, culture is used around a lot, but sometimes it's difficult to kind of break it down of what it actually is. Exactly. So, for for me, culture is how you know. Uh, you know, uh, everyone at the organization, you know, based the principles that they, you know, based on what they take decision. So if they are in a situation and then they have two decisions to take, they choose A, not B, culture has some impact in making that decision. And and the way you build culture, it start, it's top-down thing. So start with the founder. So your own, you know, core values and principles uh, that you believe in, it become pretty much the culture of the organization. But it's yeah, still, that's true. <laughs> yeah. That's who you are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But uh, as you scale, you need to make sure it's not only about you. Even the leaders in the organization are also sharing with, with you those cultures. And you need to evolve that and always question yourself, what's the right culture for that right you know, stage? within the journey of the, you know, the organization. And us as individual, we also, you know, you know, sometimes we upgrade some of the beliefs or we change some of yeah. the principles. 
that, that will also be aligned with the change that you will see in the organization. And this is why they say, they, they, they say something I really, you know, experienced myself. Being a CEO for a startup is not one single job like you, that you do the same across the years. Like I can remember that I am five different CEOs in the last 12 years because every few years I need to have different set of skills which require different, you know, leadership, you know, uh, uh, style. Uh, and, and, you know, after you figure out that, you, and then you communicate. So the, the second thing that you do after you figure out the culture and the core value is to over-communicate that every time you engage with the teams, you recruit. I make sure every time we meet someone for the final interview that we spend half time talking about the culture. This is how you tell people it's very important for you. And they, they know what to expect and what not to expect. So number two is communication and actually over communication in different shapes and forms, uh, you know, whether it's written or verbal or telling stories or appreciation or taking some, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, tough decision because of the culture misfit. So this is number two. Number three is how you embed all you know the actions that you do and the when it comes to people around culture so this committee of v2 about culture and the recruitment is one way to do it uh, the performance uh, you know management appraisal or you know process and the 360 feedback is another way to do it the normal meetings that like we we have every managers uh, you know at unifonic are expected to have one once with their teams, with everyone, they report they report to them weekly, and part of the agenda is around the culture. So, so this is how you also make sure the culture is not just words, you know, uh, and nice, you know, graphs and yeah. the, the walls. You no, know, actually, everyone is living it, and it impacts the success of them, their teams, and the organization. We measure even the the, the engagement. They call it ANBS. And we measure the satisfaction and the experience of the teams and the employees. And many aspects of that, you know, it, it measures the impact of the culture. Because at the end of the day, you, you need the right culture that will produce the best outcome as team engagement and productivity and then business results. Well, there, there, you, is, there is yeah. concept in the HR, something that really, you know, uh, let me rethink the whole, you know, uh, culture and engagement. They call it discretionary effort, and and, and it, you know, they they done you know research in thousand companies, and they figured out out of the research that engaged people who work in the right environment and culture can produce eight times as average people, and so wow. it, it it really drives the 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 outcome of the business. It's not something nice that you want to do. Sometimes you don't. You never. You know. Uh, estimate how important is the culture unless you have a problem in the culture. And then you start to realize, oh, it's damaging the organization. Yeah, absolutely. I want to ask you about a bit of a sensitive topic here as you start uh, scaling as a startup. How do you um, avoid or, or stop or control uh, company politics as you uh, start scaling hundreds of employees, bring in different executives, hiring quickly. Uh, how do you go about that? And what have you learned? Uh, yeah, from it's that? A very critical, very important question. And 
uh, a challenge that every organization will face, whether small or big. But as you become bigger, it's natural and normal that you're going to have, you know, those conflicts. And, and then it may result in some, you know, internal politics that will create the friction, which will result in the yeah. organization being very slow in achieving, you know, business targets. So number one, you know, is you need to, uh, you know, to embrace it. You know, so it will happen <laughs> uh, because human nature. Uh, yeah, it's it's part of the human nature, especially as you grow, because you are making some, you know, changes in the scope and the you know levels and the compensation. So, so number one, we have to embrace it and make sure that you know we face the elephant in the room, not escape from it. You know? So, and and then tells to number two, we have to you know to talk about it and. We, you know, we we make it as a habit inside, you know, the organization that we we check, uh, you know, and and get feedback specifically about this. So if I find any behavior or attitude uh, or actions being taken that uh, because of the motivation of personal interest that may be and uh, you know and conflict with the business interest of other people' interest, we talk about it. We talk about it with the consent teams very openly and and we involve if it's needed the managers or the HR uh, to, to address the issue because if no one talks about it and no one you know uh, realize that it may happen it will only grow uh, to keep happening yeah. exactly <laughs> then number three if it's necessarily because it's not part of our culture it's not culture that we want to build at Unifonic it's Actually, again, it's one of the main principles and core values that we have, which is being honest and transparent and, and, and work together as a one team to achieve the company goal. So if, if, if it's needed, we, we take aggressive uh, you know, action. So everyone knows that this is for us is a red line that cannot be crossed. So we may uh, have to depart with people or we do not you know, give good feedback in the evaluation, the performance because of things related to that. What's your approach when, uh, and I'm sure it's happened to you um, before and happens a lot of uh, growing startups when you have two executives or two people in conflict. So there's, there's a conflict. One of them comes and says, you know, uh, the, this other person is, is, is becoming, you know, whatever, difficult to work with or, or having issues with them. What is your kind of best way of, of, of addressing that as a CEO? So number one, I let them know that if there is a conflict between you, especially if you are, they are leaders and you guys couldn't solve it, for me, you know, both of you, uh, you know, need to improve. Regardless who is, you know, the one that created the conflict or made the mistake. Because if A created the conflict, B couldn't handle it, then for me, it's, it's something that both need to work. Both have a problem. Yeah. Both have a problem. So, by so this is how I try to make sure those conflicts get resolved, resolved before they get escalated. So this is number one. Number two, if it get escalated, I, uh, I I let them sit together and talk about it. You know, it cannot be in the back doors and everyone is talking about the other one without facing it. So I ask them to sit together, talk about it, and put an effort to solve it, face the problem, understand the motivation and the drive of each person, put yourself in his shoe, and try to reach an agreement. And I monitor closely, but I do not interfere. And then if they couldn't solve it, 
if they report into me, of course, I interfere. If they don't report into me, it's the manager responsibility, whether it's the same managers, two different managers to reach to an agreement. Uh, uh, and and we encourage people to, to have what we call task conflict, not personal conflict. So we always try to convert those conflicts into, you know, a, a, a task conflict, different opinion about that task. And then the ultimate decision will go to the owner who will be accountable for this. He will take the, you know, the right decision or the ultimate decision, even if other people will not agree with him, you know, we, at least we agree to disagree. Uh, but, but sometimes, and it happened, you cannot solve it and it escalate and become very personal to the moment that both of them cannot work in the same environment. And sometimes you have to make a tough call, you know, uh, so whether you change the scope so they do not interact uh, too frequently or uh, some of them will, will not. To yeah. Let go of someone. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we, we spoke a little bit about kind of like all hands meetings, one-on-ones and, and, um, various kind of meetings to create more communication, to, to uh, kind of uh, continue to share that culture on a regular basis, communicate about these issues. Do you follow any specific format for, uh, let's start with one-on-ones, uh, whether your one-on-ones or the one-on-ones that different leaders and team members have within, within the organization? And um, what do you think about the importance of that? Yeah, so... It's, uh, uh, it falls under the importance of the communication because those are different platforms how we can, you know, you know, speak our mind and, you know, iterate and emphasize on what's important for us. Uh, uh, and the way we start, so we evolved, we improved that many, you know, times based on the scale and the priority uh, and, and the challenges that you have. So uh, number one, you, you know, I will always be open-minded to improve and reshape and change based on the outcomes that we want to achieve. Those are frameworks and has to be agile and flexible. Uh, I want to ask you about uh, something that's, that's specific to the, uh, contributes a lot to the communication uh, across the company and uh, having that communication between you and team members or between leaders and team members, specifically around one-on-one uh, meetings. Uh, what is your format or approach or, or uh framework kind of to, to, to that so, so it's again it's part of the communication uh, to reiterate and emphasize in what's important for the company and the culture uh, and and one thing that uh, we learned and you know they need to be flexible and agile and we improved them actually many times across the years uh, because they are just tools to serve a purpose and the purpose is to align everyone at the organization toward one, one, one goal. So, you know, for example, now every manager at Unifonic are expected to have one-on-ones with the direct report once weekly. And we actually encourage them to spend most of the time not talking about actual work, about talking about other things other than work. Are they happy, engaged? Do you have any problems in managing the relationship between, you know, the other colleagues within? So it's not about the task and the management of the task. Is more about the management of the person and and uh, and how he's you know navigating all you know the relationship across the organization. And I, I I do the same with my team. And then another important thing that every leader at the organization, no matter how big your span is, you need to speak with all them that the team members at least once 
every uh, uh, two weeks. Uh, so I do, for example, we call it all minds. Uh, so I, I do once every week. I address everyone at the organization toward the end of the week, and we 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 uh, you know talk openly about the performance of the company, the challenges, any questions about the strategy, the direction, and we have many times uh, some internal or external guests. So it has different themes, but it happens every week. Everyone uh, you know uh, are excited to to join and and ask and see the updates and share. So this is one thing that we 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 um, you know we we are doing since long time and uh, and uh, we intend to keep because it has very good influence in the culture and the, the organization. Another thing we do the leadership uh, calls uh, uh, every week. It's focusing the performance and the metrics and the updates. So everyone in the leadership uh, sits together and and we we prefer to be well prepared to the meeting with data points and documentation. So we spend the discussion is around only things that need to be, you know, agreed upon or critical decision that we need to make. So we invest a lot of time before the meeting. So everyone come to the meeting ready with only very critical things that need to be discussed in the meeting. So this is the, the main three, you know, I, I would say themes, the one one the all minds and the performance weekly uh, meeting, and then we can scale those down across the organization. It's not only yeah, I like that you call it. Yeah, the, and the weekly leadership like performance meeting. All minds, not yeah, all we hands. call it yeah, all <laughs> minds, not hands. And then, and then the the weekly uh, you know meeting we call it WCM, and I do and and I will let you guess why we call it WCM, the the weekly performance meeting. WCM. <laughs> Probably weekly. <laughs> no, warrior command. I can't figure it out. Tell me. Warrior command meeting. It's like all hands on deck. So we call it warrior command meeting. Oh, awesome. <laughs> I love that. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Amazing. Okay, to, to wrap up, we have a few minutes left. Uh, I, I want to talk about fundraising. You've uh, you're the fundraise, you know, uh, millions of tens of millions, and now hundreds of millions of dollars after your recent fundraising. One of the most funded startups in the region. Uh, how do you structure fundraising? Uh, when you were did the first round, and then now did uh, mega round. Uh, how do you structure it? What have you learned from fundraising, uh, and, and what is your approach to it? Uh, yeah, I will take you back to the, the you know the same answer that I usually use is the story again, and I, I hope you will not hate me <laughs> because of this. But it's again the story when we started, you know, with the first I love stories. Yeah, when we started the the funding, actually, you know. It's common across the board. It's one of the most important traits for any founder and leader to to have the ability of telling you know true stories that you believe at, and then you you know you you partner with people who believe with the story and they touch their you know uh, life and motivation. And the fundraising is not an exception uh, from from that uh, formula for me. So you have a story that you believed at the story. You take that story to the market. You build a great team based on that story, and uh, you start to get some results. And then you go and tell the story to the investors, 
So they become part of that story by giving you money. So you ex- execute at scale. So, so when we went to, to the investors in series A and B, we, we, it always, you know, was like part of that story. We need to go next the, here, what we are today here, what we want to, to, to achieve in the next two years and here, what we believe you can add uh, uh, value and, and, uh, resources to that story. And, and then everything else, just the details you will learn through the process. Uh, but we structurally think this way. So that will judge which investors we will talk with, which terms we will accept or not, which valuation uh, we will, uh, you know, target. Uh, uh, and, and it connects everything that we do towards serving that goal. It worked well for us with the fundraising series A. And using that money, we were able to grow the business by five times in the three year, last three years. And now we did the same in, in, in uh, series B. Uh, our next story is about being international, being uh, a, a homegrown champion from the region to to the outside world, uh, uh, and and uh, you know going to the the wider customer experience space, not only the customer communication, and and for that story to work, we we need specific investors and partners who believe in the story, who believe in. Uh, and the team and the founders. And, and then we met many, we met almost 70 this, this time around, all high growth funds. On average, they, they manage, you know, $10 billion uh, and they, they have more than 100 companies in their portfolio. But this is all part of the story. The scale, the portfolio companies that they have, the partners who will sit in the board and, and the terms that they do. And we do reference check by the way, one of the things that we started early in Series A, we do very detailed, deep reference check uh, when we work with investors and partners within those funds. It's not only the fund, even the partner is more important than the fund because he will spend most of the time and it will be personal success story for him. So you need to make sure that, you know, you can work uh, along with those, with those great partners. My uh, final question uh, to you, uh, what is next for Unifonic? Are we going to see a SPAC or an IPO soon? Uh, so I, I think we still have, uh, you know, <laughs> more bandwidth to grow privately. And and there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, a lot of opportunities that we can capture using, uh, you know, uh, you know, private, whether it's equity or debt money before we go IPO. We would, we would rather do the IPO not because it's the only option to raise fund. No, we would like to do the IBO because it's the best option to uh, uh, to, to raise fund. So uh, our ambition and plan to IBO in three years time probably will raise fund before, uh, and and before we IBO, our plan is uh, uh, to IBO when we really believe the company at the right milestone to uh, to be a global success. So even our ambitions for the IBO and the, you know, the, the market capitalization that we have in mind, it's something that can be massive for an organization at our uh, uh, space, uh, not, not, and the benchmark is not the region, it's, it's the, the, the globe. That's really amazing, Ahmad. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Best of luck in your journey. We're really looking forward to see uh, what's next for, for Unifonic. 
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like this podcast and want to listen to more episodes, subscribe to the Meta Conversations podcast on one of your favorite podcast channels. 